If you're a leader or on the way to be one, then what does it really take to get to that next level? When you're normal, feels like you just aren't able to lead and live at your best, then it might be time to take a deeper look. So let's talk to a leadership expert who has made a difference for thousands of executives in more than 100 companies, and he's the author of The Next Level. Today, it's Scott Eblen on the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. Before we bring in Scott Eblen to our virtual guest couch, a word of welcome to you and thanks, whether you are a subscriber or visiting for the first time. In this podcast, we discuss the three foundational components for growing your business through messaging. One, the message itself, meaning the words, stories, and evidence you want to share. Two, how to build a robust network of messengers who will help you share the message. And three, management habits that will shape your culture and make your improvement sustainable. I added this podcast to my speaking, consulting, and writing work, not only because I like listening to podcasts myself, because podcasts offer a very flexible, intimate forum for exploring topics and tips in more detail. We've already seen a rapid growth in subscribers. I hope you'll both find value in the podcast and share it with others who would likewise enjoy it. Today, our focus is on the management component, and we have a great guest for that. Scott Eblen is a leadership expert, a global speaker, best-selling author, and executive coach. And Scott, if I get any of these details wrong, I'm sure you will call me out. We'll try to be accurate here. Scott spent about 15 years in the corporate world before he transitioned into executive coaching. He had worked in economic development, banking, and energy. He was always working with top leaders up close and personal, which I suspect drew him into coaching. His first best-selling book, The Next Level, was published in 2006. His second bestseller, Overworked and Overwhelmed, came out in 2014. Between the time he wrote those books, Scott had to deal with a health crisis when he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis that forced him to take a hard look at his own habits and rituals, and I would suspect has inspired his recent work. Scott has continued to grow his coaching and speaking businesses, and you might be interested to know he is a registered yoga teacher. Scott is an honors graduate of Davidson College. Scott, here's where I go into some interpretation. I would suspect that you are among the most famous Davidson alumni. (laughs) Not even close, actually. I mean, Steph Curry is far and away the most famous Davidson alumni at this point. He's the one that's that's best known. Uh, NBA star Steph Curry did play at Davidson. I'm not sure if he has graduated, though. Well, I think they consider him an alumni person. He's certainly a Davidson person, yes. It takes yeah. a lot. Now, I also looked, and uh, President Woodrow Wilson also attended, but I think he transferred, so he might not be an alumnus either. I think he transferred to Princeton, actually. Yeah, yeah, he took a step down. Scott also has a master's degree in public administration from Harvard University. The third edition of The Next Level will have likely hit the market by the time this episode goes public. Congratulations on that, Scott. By definition, 
it's unlikely our listeners can be effective message managers if they're having struggles as managers. So welcome to the podcast. This is very timely. I'm really happy to be here. I, I love what you're doing with this. So thanks for having me as a guest. Well, thanks very much. Let's begin a bit in the middle in the consulting work that you're doing with executives. And this whole realm of coaching is a practice that's been around for a while, but it's become kind of a hot topic. And I thought we might explore that a little bit in terms of just in general with the clients you're working with and how they come to be your clients. So are there patterns about how those professionals come to recognize that they might benefit from coaching help? So is that something that people tend to recognize on their own or is it part maybe of executive development programs or their bosses or boards see the need or the opportunity first? Are there patterns about how people kind of come into that role? I think the answer to all parts of that question is yes. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it really, you know, it's like so many things in life. The Another answer is it depends, right? In my work, I tend to focus on corporate executives in the one-on-one -on -one coaching that I do these days. It's, it's more or less limited to C-suite level leaders and their direct reports for the most part. I have a few that, that aren't quite there at that level, but are, are key, you know, key leaders within their, within their organizations. And you mentioned how coaching has evolved and grown over the years, Jim. I, you know, when I started coaching 18 years ago, it wasn't not nearly as well known or as widely adopted as it is now. And I think most corporations, certainly the Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 kind of companies are very familiar with coaching at this point and quite often will have sort of a formal coaching program. It's seen more and more as a benefit which I'm glad of that, but it's seen as a benefit for the executive. And the whole goal most of the time really is to make really great people even better, you know, in terms of, of their leadership effectiveness. For me, I tend to focus on the situations of what's changing, you know, and, and you know, the book, The Next Level, when I first wrote it, it was I had the audience that I had in mind were people who were promoted to the executive level for the first time in their career. And I think the book is still definitely for those people. But what I've learned over the years and 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 working with the material and sharing it with people through coaching and speaking and workshops and whatever else is next level can be a lot of things, right? And a, it could be bigger scope. It could be changing competitive environment. It could be higher performance expectations. What all of those have in common is you have to get different results. Different results require different actions, typically. And so I, I work a lot with folks on the question of what do you need to pick up? What do you need to let go of to get where you need to go behaviorally, mindset-wise? So I'm kind of rambling, but I hope that answers your question. It's not rambling because I'm sure that although there are patterns that every situation is going to be a little bit different, does it tend to be when you're working with a, a new executive or maybe you know someone that has been in that sort of role for a while? you tend to be coaching toward a particular competency or outcome? Is it tend to be more of an advisor role as needed? Or again, is it uh, depend upon the situation? Yeah, I think I'd, I'd go with the last thing you said. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking as you're asking the question of clients that I'm currently working with, right? So these are all the three or so people that I have in mind. I can extend it to 
four or five people that I have in mind as I think more about it. They're all C-suite people or direct reports to C-suites, a president of an organization that I'm working with, a couple of COOs that I'm working with. And like, so in one case, I've been working this one individual for a couple of years now, and uh, he was new to his senior leadership role when we first started working together, but he's gotten more and more comfortable in that role over the years. But there are always strategic issues to consider. So I'd say that one is probably more of an advisory engagement at this point. Initially, it was more behaviorally focused, but I think it's more advisory focused at this point. A newer client who's a COO, it's it's probably more focused on how do you, he's had the opportunity to to bring in a new team and helping him think through how to leverage his team really effectively and for his own good uh, because he's kind of been doing a lot without the resources that he probably would have liked to have had historically and so there's a real transition for him to make right in terms of how do you leverage your team how do you identify the highest and best use of your own time and attention now that you've got a great team and another person i'm working with I don't really refer to it as work-life balance. I, I tend to think of it as life rhythm. You know, what are the elements of a life rhythm that really works for you? Because all of these people are in really demanding jobs and, you know, in really competitive environments externally, some always externally and quite often internally. And so, you know, you can just have your foot on the gas 110% of the time and that's not really sustainable. And so, you know, how do you organize your life in a way that it ends up in a rhythm that is, you know, you mentioned lead and live at your best in the, in the intro so that you lead at your best and live at your best. And I really believe that to lead at your best, you have to live at your best. So, you know, that last engagement that I had in mind is, is really focused on helping that client think through what it means to them to, you know, hit the right rhythm and hit the sweet spot. You bet. And you mentioned the word sustainable and, and we're here sustainable and scalability a lot these days. And I, I think that relates to what you're talking about with some of your current clients. You have written in the past that a lot of really good professionals have to make a transition. And you said in the past, they may have been seen as a go-to person and they're really valuable in terms of something that they know how to do or how they know how to coach some other people themselves. So maybe they're the go-to for strategic planning. Maybe they're the go-to for innovation, product development, whatever that might be. But you have to go from being that person that people depend upon to get something done to someone who can empower and equip and rely upon a team. So can you describe that in a little more detail and, and how to recognize if they or someone in their organization is potentially stuck in being that go-to person. Yeah, and that's a really key idea is that you get stuck in that identity, you know, and and that identity plays out, I think, in a couple of different ways. I mean, there's the identity or the brand that you're projecting to everybody else. And so if you're known as being the go-to person, they're going to keep coming to you because you're the go-to person. And what do go-to people do? They get stuff done, right? So you've got this reputation for getting stuff done in the absence of, of changing, to use your language, changing the message, you know, it's, that's going to keep happening. So that's one domain. But the other domain of identity is self-identity. What I've seen over the years is pretty much every leader who ends up in a senior role 
has been known at some point in their career as being a go-to person because they've gotten stuff done. You're rewarded for that. You get promoted to a high level. You keep getting stuff done. So it's a great thing to always say. It's a great thing to be a go-to person until it's no longer a great thing to be. And so that's when the scope gets to be so big and you can't really scale it anymore, right? I mean, it's just, there's no way you can do all of that yourself, nor should you, right? Because you're not building any capacity in the organization. So I think when you start to notice that you're the bottleneck, that's a good sign that you're stuck in being the go-to person, that things are slowing down because you haven't had a chance to pay attention to them yet or to give your sign off or your review or whatever it is. When you've got way more to do than anybody could accomplish in a 168-hour week, you know, you're obviously you're not working all of those 168 hours. There are different signs. I think the other one is when you get really wedded to your version of how, you know, like, you know, like uh, your way is the only way. One of the things I really like to talk with leaders about is to ask them to think about over the course of their career, I'll ask this in, in, in workshops and keynotes quite often, uh, you know, you've got a hundred or so people or more in the room that are, are leaders. How many of you can identify at least one experience in your career, some assignment, task force, crisis, project, something you were thrown into in a leadership role that when you look back on, you say, man, that was hard, but I learned so much on that one. And usually every hand will go up. Like if you've been around long enough, you're going to have one of those. And so then I'll ask a few people to describe the situation. And they're always really high stakes situations and really complicated, hard things. And, you know, and, and so I'll hear two or three of those and ask the room, okay, everybody else, yours was equally hard. Yeah. Okay. So the what really mattered and it was really clear. Next question, did any of you, including the people we heard from, the whole room, did any of you have any beside you in that big developmental experience saying, here's how you do the next thing and here's how you do the next thing and here's how you do the next thing. And you never, ever get anybody who says, oh yeah, I had that. Never do they have that. And that's exactly why it's the biggest developmental experience of their career is because somebody gave them a big hairy what to do and to lead on and let them figure out how to do it. And that's a big aha for a lot of leaders. Oh, yeah, that is what happened. And so then the next thing is that's the same opportunity that you can create for your team. Let go of your version of how. And what you're usually going to find is if you've got a good team, they'll come back with a how that is at least as good of, as yours and quite often better <laughs> than yours. And, you know, It doesn't require your level of expertise anymore. There's stuff that only you can do as a leader that's way more important for you to focus on. We're talking to Scott Eblen on the Manager Message podcast, and that's a, a great couple of points that I want to reinforce. So making that transition from being the go-to person that people know for a specific competency and being able to be a more scalable leader, you described first, there's more of a shift of identity of, of not, there's an allure, I think, of being known as the go-to person, right? It, sure. it feeds our yeah. ego and, and, and we know of being really good at something. But it requires a, a bit of a shift of identity from that. And then, as you said, you, you got to be able to let go of your version of how in order to engage other people. I've seen where you have phrased it in terms of being less focused on selling your idea and more about, as you said, enrolling other people in your idea. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I think in terms of, of messengers, but this is even perhaps even more depth to it in, in terms of getting people into the idea and then giving them some latitude in the how. Is that a, a fair way to look at it? 
Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, you know, it, I'll keep coming back to it depends, right? Letting people determine their version of how doesn't mean that you set it and forget it as a leader. Like, you know, come back to me when you have it done. I mean, you know, you, you still probably need check-ins, especially if it's a high-stake thing. You need to stay informed. I mean, there's a distinction I make in the next level. Pick up accountability for many results and let go of responsibility for a few And what I mean, another way to say that is if you're accountable, you own it. If you're responsible, you do it. And so you've got to create space for your team to do it. But as a leader, you still own it, right? And so you've got to have systems and processes in place that enable you to stay informed, to coach where you need to coach, to redirect where it needs to be redirected. But, you know, that's a slippery slope into micromanagement. You've got to be really self-aware of what you're doing and why you're doing it. But, or there may be other things where you can just completely let it go and let them run. You know, it really, again, it just depends on the situation, the stakes, you know, so many factors. We can come back to selling versus enrolling. I don't want to uh, filibuster you here. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. And Scott, sometimes these shifts in identity, focus, and expectations, rituals, they come as a progression as people want to have more and more impact and they have more and more responsibility. And sometimes life comes and and slaps you in the face and requires a redirect. And to shift gears a bit here, if you could talk a bit about your own experience, when you had to redefine what best meant for you, it was, uh, I believe around 2009. And you go from someone who's very uh, active, already very successful as a, as a writer, as a coach, you're an active runner. That's part of what defines you and your physical activity and the like. And then, and then you got a, a diagnosis. You had a, a severe change in your outlook. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, so you mentioned I was a runner. And are you a runner by any chance? I used to be. I actually ran, I don't know if you call it a bucket list thing. I don't much care for the term, but there was a time when I ran. I'm kind of built for running, but I don't enjoy it. But I decided one time that I would run a marathon. So I, I ran a number of years ago, the, the New York City Marathon. Oh, that's a good one. That's, that's a great one it to was, run. It was oh. terrific. 95% of my goal was to survive it. And then 5% was to make a certain time to do it in less than four hours. I did both of those things. And I considered, you know, I'll check that box and my back and knees and ankles will forgive me. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge success to, you know, have that be your only marathon and do it in under four hours is amazing. That's great. So yeah, you know, I'd grown up from age 10 or 12 or whatever it was running that was, you know, I didn't have any hand eye coordination. So running, <laughs> running was a good outlet. I've observed over the years that people where running is the central thing in their life as it was for me. I mean, it was one of the central things in my life. I think there's a mindset of running, you know, like, okay, I don't remember, you know, I'm training for a marathon. I don't remember why I'm on my 15 mile training run and it hurts like hell at mile five and I really should quit, but I'm not going to quit because I'm on the 15 mile training run. That's what's on the list today. And I, I've got to get that done. And you, you keep running, right? You know, you, and I think that mindset transfers over into other aspects of your life, you know, and you just kind of keep, you know, I'm going to run through the wall. I don't care what the obstacle is. I set out to do it. I'm going to do it. And it's a very linear kind of approach and nothing wrong with it. That's just my observation of it. And, so, you know, in early 2009, I was 
running. <laughs> That's what I always did. And I bet my calves kind of felt like lead in that early parts of that year. And like any good type A, uh, I got on WebMD to self-diagnose, you know, like what's wrong with my legs. My self-diagnosis was lumbar stenosis, which is a you know, pinched nerve in your spinal cord. And I thought, well, okay, that should be pretty easy to fix. So I, you know, I made a, an appointment with a physiatrist, a specialist that focuses on that intersection between the, you know, the skeletal system and the nervous system and all that. And I walked in, I said, well, I'm pretty sure I have lumbar stenosis. I just need you to tell me what our plan is and, you know, I'll get out of your hair. And she said, well, thanks for the help, but uh, why don't we run some MRIs? And uh, the MRIs came back a few weeks later and I had MS basically and lesions in my, on my spine and my brain. And in the interim though, between the time that I first went to and the time I went back for the results, it progressed like dramatically to the point where I couldn't feel my feet on the ground, not just running, but walking, which makes it really challenging to walk or run for that matter. And I was losing a lot of strength. I was having to drag myself up the banister basically to get upstairs because my legs really weren't working. And I said, long, very long story short, you know, we confirmed the diagnosis with a neurologist and the rest of that year was really downhill into 2010 was really downhill and became more and more incapacitated, really. I mean, I was still able to do work, but it was really a challenge to do work. And there were many weeks where I was, you know, on my back on the couch for two or three, four days at a time and just trying to get up, really. And a friend of ours, uh, my wife specifically, Diane, a friend of Diane's is a health expert, multi-degreed, PhD, master's degrees, and this, this and that. And she's also a yoga teacher. And she said that, you know, he should do yoga. Scott should do yoga because I've had really good outcomes teaching yoga to Parkinson's and patients with MS, Parkinson's people and MS people and people with autoimmune neurological kind of issues and really good outcomes he should do it. So that's like a really interesting idea, but I can barely walk around the block. So how am I going to do yoga? But I went and I told the teacher that first night, you know, I kind of whispered to her because we weren't telling anybody back then what I had. And she said, that's okay. We have people like you here all the time. And here's the deal I make you. If you come here three days a week, it'll change your body. And if you come here more than three days a week, it'll change your life. And so I took option B, the more than three days a week option. And she was right on both counts. Within about a month, I started regaining a lot of mobility, strength. Uh, my balance was improving. Like it's now better than it's ever been, you know, I mean, years later, eight years later. And I do handstands and headstands and all kinds of party tricks that I never would have <laughs> imagined that I would do. But it's, you know, I started thinking like, what? and then it started, I was told by people who live with me that I was easier to live with, you know, over time. And, you know, it was sinking in in different ways. And I started thinking about why is that? And I was still working with corporate clients. And I really felt like in that same period from about 2008 on, I could see the stress levels in corporate world increasing year over year. Financial crisis kicked that off. The rise of the smartphone was a huge factor in the stress levels going up. And you know, because you can be always connected, you know, with those and do any kind of work from anywhere and the boundaries were dropping. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm seeing this with my clients, I'm having this own personal experience and started thinking, okay, like what's working for me and how does that apply to the rest of the world? And what I started learning about was 
the nervous system, really. We have an autonomic nervous system, all of us do, and there are three parts to it, but the two parts, well, there's one part that's really well known. That's the fight or flight response. That's your sympathetic nervous system. And, you know, it's designed to get us out of, out of danger, you know, when we're in physical threat uh, from an evolutionary standpoint, that's what it does. I think a lot of people these days, especially in corporate world, are in a chronic state of fight or flight. They're not in acute physical threat, but all the stuff that is on their mind that they know they haven't gotten to yet, or all the things they're trying to keep track of, or all the commitments they can't honor, all of that stuff puts them in a low-grade state of feeling threatened. And the physiological impact of that is pretty much the same as it would be in acute fight or flight, but the impact is more severe because it's chronic, right? And so your blood pressure is up, your stress hormones are up, your, your blood clotting is up, your digestive system is down, your immune system is down, your growth and sex hormones are down. And so in the short run, it has a huge impact on your professional performance and your personal life because you are anxious and irritable and insomniac and you're gaining weight and you're not healthy because of your blood pressure and all kinds of stuff. In the long run, it kills you earlier. <laughs> you know, you, you die earlier because you, know, you end up in a chronic disease state. And a very long answer to your question, but like in, in my case, why did yoga work? Well, yoga works because I think one reason it works is because you're activating the opposite part of your autonomic system. It's the parasympathetic response as opposed to the sympathetic response. And it's the rest and digest is the nickname for that. And one fight or flight on the one hand, rest and digest on the other. And the way I've heard it described, I like the best. I heard this from Rick Hansen, who's a great author. Buddha's Brain is a great book of his. Fight or flight is your body's gas pedal. Rest and digest is your body's braking system. And they are designed to work together in what scientists would call homeostasis. It's a state of balance between the two uh, nervous system responses. Any rhythmic repetitive motion, like yoga, like walking, like running for that matter, like three deep breaths from your belly, like praying the rosary and repetitive prayer, any rhythmic repetitive motion activates the parasympathetic response, activates the braking system, the rest and digest response. And so I just started thinking about, okay, if these people are in chronic fight or flight, as I was, you know, then how can I help them find a better rhythm, you know? And that's why I talked about life rhythm earlier. And so a lot of my work, you know, when I, to lead at your best, you have to live at your best. To live at your best piece of it, I really am focusing, I'm trying to help them understand how their body works, you know, and and what's going on with that. And that there are actually things that you can do consciously and deliberately to activate your braking system throughout the day. And you need to do that to live longer and be healthier, but you also need to do it to be effective as a leader in the short run. And to your point, like your messaging is going to be a lot more effective because you're going to be more intentional and aware of why you're doing what you're doing with your messaging and how to do it. And so there's so many things. Anyway, that's a ton of stuff. I'll be quiet. <laughs> it's a remarkable story and a remarkable thing that you had to go through. And as you were first describing that, you know, as running as an example of, of something, you know, that's something, as you said, you don't have to have great hand-eye coordination. You don't have to play in the mm -hmm. team. You can just do it. And in the absence of a physical limitation or an injury, that's pretty much it. You just need to be stubborn and and have a tolerance for pain. And you just do it. And there's a high sense of, of control. And then you had that taken away. 
And so yeah. um, to be able to, to come in and, and readjust, figure the things that you can control and how to bring the physical and the emotional and the cognitive back more into line. And, and certainly that experience, while it couldn't, <laughs> none of that sounds like it was, was easy and, and be a very anxious time, but it probably given you another lens through which you can help clients, you know, but between the, the walls of, of self and work and family and home as well. So it's a, a larger point there. I also wanted to come back around and you mentioned smartphones and stress mm-hmm. levels and just all of that. It would seem that, that, and you talk about, and there's a lot of talk these days about mindfulness. You've talked a lot about presence and, and how to connect to other people, connect to your team, connect to customers and the like. When I was doing some research for my book and I saw some research from um, a professor named Linda Stone and others have, have written about this phenomenon about, you know, basically people having a hard time getting away from the dopamine hit, getting away from uh, the smartphone. The phenomenon, she, she calls it continuous partial attention. And it, we wind up being on that brain buzz from being uh, connected digitally, which tends to disconnect us from personal relationships and tends to keep people in kind of a constant stressed out state. So is that something that you see, I would suspect, in uh, your coaching work and in the, the organizations where you work? And what are the things that you do with your clients to help them get away from that? You had mentioned some, some physical techniques as well. Are there some rituals? Are there some habits that you find that can reduce the stress level and have people more connected to the present when they need to be? Yeah, I think absolutely there is. There's a, a tool that Diane, my wife, and I developed for ourselves 22 or three years ago at this point when our kids were little that we called the Life GPS. And it's featured in, I think, chapter three or four of the next level the chapter on picking up regular renewal of your energy and perspective and letting go of running flat out into, until you crash. And it's a one-page worksheet that people can download. There's a, an address in the book for, for downloading it. But it's three questions that we ask our clients to consider and answer for themselves. So they've got it as a reference point on one page. First question is, how are you at your best? You know, When you're living and leading at your best, what does that look like? What are the words or short phrases, four or five words or short phrases that describe you at your best? And then to get to your question, Jim, the next big question in the Life GPS is, what are the routines that you either have in your life or need in your life that would make it more likely that you would live and lead at your best? And those routines come in four domains, physical, mental, relational, and spiritual. And I'll come back to that in a second. And then the last question just to close that loop is on the GPS is, uh, so if you were consistent in living and leading at your best and showing up at your best, what outcomes would you hope or expect to see in the three big arenas of life, your life at home, your life at work, and your life in your community? And you know, just notionally, what would you expect? You know, what's the connection between living and leading at your best, and and the results or the outcomes that flow from that? The routines part. There's a lot of good things you could do or should do probably in in each of those domains: physical, mental, relational, and spiritual. The conclusion I've come to, and consuming a lot of research, other people's research, and my own observation of my clients and my own personal experience with 
kind of the path I'm on post-diagnosis. I think there's a killer app really, you know, in each of those four spaces, like, you know, like in the physical, you should definitely get enough sleep, seven hours minimum. You should definitely eat well, like preferably not out of a box or a bag. But if you're only going to do one thing, you should move. And that would be some form of movement and not just two or three times a week at the gym, but throughout the day, ideally hourly, you should get up and move. You know, the, all the research that's come out in the last several years on this topic, you can summarize with the headline, sitting is the new smoking if you sit on your butt for eight or nine or 10 hours a day, as many professionals do, the impact on your life expectancy is about the same as smoking a pack of cigarettes every day. So some form of five to 10 minutes, uh, an hour of movement, really key. And that rhythmic repetitive motion helps you reset, right? It activates the braking system. In the middle space, I would say the killer app there is intentional breathing, you know, three deep breaths from your belly. And you know, you're doing it right. If your belly is moving out on the inhale and moving in on the exhale, three deep breaths from your belly activates the braking system again. It reduces the amount of stress hormones that are coursing through your veins and allows you to center and pause and think about, okay, what am I trying to do next and how do I need to show up to do that? I'd say in the relational space, listening is the killer app. I think there are three kinds of listening, transient, transactional, and transformational None of us need to practice transient. It's kind of the smartphone-induced listening mode where our attention isn't really there. Transactional is fine. It's, you know, it's problem-solving-oriented kind of listening. Let's get to the next step. But transformational listening, I think, is where the value really is added. And there's interesting research that demonstrates that people who have strong relationships in their life live longer and have stronger immune systems on the way to living longer it's a positive impact on the physiology and that transformational listening, listening with no other intention than to connect with the other person is huge, right? And it has a big impact in all domains, all arenas, homework and community. And then finally on the spiritual, I'd say, you know, kind of the tradition neutral killer app there would be some form of reflection on a regular basis. And there's lots of different modalities that that could take one that I think most people can relate to is to consider on some kind of regular basis what you're grateful for in your life. And again, there's a ton of research that demonstrates that people who actively express and reflect on gratitude and what they're grateful for in their life are healthier people. It all, it's, you know, it's amazing how we're built uh, as human beings. It's just, it's systemic. (laughs) And all these systems in our body work together and quite often, you know, our, our approach has been to think of them as, well, there's the cardiovascular system and let's, let's just focus on that. Or there's the nervous system and let's just focus on that. They all work together, right? And, and so it's just, and I'm not an expert on that, but I'm just trying to help people like, understand the connections, you know, between those and how it impacts their life and their leadership. That's great structure and a great focus. The tool is called Life GPS. Message managers, we will have all these links and uh, these resources in the show notes, but we'll mention and we'll get Scott will give you opportunity at the end to summarize some of these resources as well, but it's eblingroup.com, but we'll connect to these tools. And just to put a, an exclamation point on one element that uh, you talked about, Scott, is uh, gratitude. And I read some research on it as well. I, it's not research of mine, but taking a look at my mother and grandmother told me to count my blessings. And as it turns out, that was pretty good advice. And what we mm-hmm. found in practice or has been found in research is that 
the act of writing it down and the right cadence seems to be about once per week. So it doesn't seem like a chore, but it's something that kind of brings these things together. So if you're explicit about that, specific people and and things that bring that sense of gratitude in you, it's when people tend to get the most payoff. And so great advice, great guidance. Scott, we must talk about the third edition of the book that you're best known for, The Next Level, What Insiders Know About Executive Success. The first edition came out a little over a decade ago. So what has prompted you to come with the third edition and and what have you learned in that interim? What's what's new in this version of The Next Level? Yeah, it's funny. It's a good transition off the gratitude point because I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to you know, release a third edition. And I, I, one of the reasons I'm grateful is it's, an, it's been an opportunity for me to kind of put everything in one place. <laughs> you know, the, the second edition came out in 2010. So that was eight years ago. And I've learned a lot, you know, in those 10 years, I was just kind of beginning the personal journey, you know, that we talked about earlier with the MS stuff when that book came out in 2010 and really there was a lot of stuff that I had to learn still and still do. Obviously, we all do. But, you know, I just I learned a lot in a lot of different ways in those eight years, both through personal experience, but also through the experience of working with my clients in a really, really challenging time. You know, I mean, just for the reasons we talked about, you know, coming out of the financial crisis, the technology driven pace of, of work and life and just there's a lot going on. And so. The next level has always been about what do you have to pick up and what do you have to let go of behaviorally or mindset wise to get to the place you need to be to be successful in this next level situation, promotion or bigger scope or whatever it is. So that's still the same. And I've focused over the years in the book on particular sets of behaviors to pick up or let go in three aspects of leadership presence, personal presence, team presence, and organizational presence. And that's still the same. But I'm always kind of on a quest, and I hope you, you know, you, I think you probably relate to this given your focus. I'm always on a quest to make things simpler, <laughs> you know, and and to make it more memorable. And so what does personal team and organizational presence really mean, or what does it translate to in terms of an imperative? So one of the things that's new in the third edition is this like calling out, you know, these three things that really all leaders need to do to be successful in next level roles. And the first thing is to manage yourself, which we've been talking about a lot in this conversation. The second thing is to leverage your team effectively. And the third is to engage your colleagues. And I've I've come to think of that as like a pyramid, really, you know, with managing yourself at the foundation of the pyramid. And if you're not doing that well, then you're not going to be well set up to do the other two. You're certainly not going to make the right kinds of decisions show up the way you need to show up, think through the things the way you need to think them through to leverage your team effectively. And if you're not leveraging your team effectively, then you're not going to have the bandwidth to engage your colleagues you know, in a meaningful way. And that ends up leaving a lot of value on the table because so much value is created through peer-to-peer and you know, outside-in collaboration. And a lot of leaders that I work with, they don't leave themselves much space for that. And they need to. It's the best thing for their organizations and it's the best thing for them personally if they want to continue to to grow in advance. Scott Eblen, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. And again, how can people follow you and continue to find out about your work? 
Yeah. So thanks for asking. If you want specifics on the Next Level 3rd Edition, you can go to the nextlevel.info, that website. And if you want to learn more about just this, the range of what we do in my work, you can go to eblingroup.com. And there's also information there on the next level as well. Message managers, I'm sure you'll join me in thanking Scott Eblin for a great conversation today. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If so, and you can probably see me getting down on one knee here. Scott says I need to move. So I'm going to ask if you'll please share it with friends and colleagues who likewise might find the podcast valuable. Please subscribe, rate, and review. That's the big deal in the podcast world, and that'll make it much easier for others to find us. We'll have summaries and links in the show notes, and you can always find more resources at manageyourmessagepodcast.com or jimcar.com. That's J-I-M-K-A-R-R-H. And finally, if you know of companies or associations that might benefit from having me speak to them about ways to manage their message, please put us in touch. My email is jim at jimcar.com. Thank you again. Until next time. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at manageyourmessagepodcast.com and jimcarr.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.